Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There has traditionally been a grand narrative of Western civilization, presenting an unbroken line from ancient Greece and Rome to today's liberal democratic Western states. Today's guest argues that this is not supported by the evidence. Her new book, The West, explores the lives of 14 historical women and men over 2,500 years who give us a counter-narrative. Four of those individuals fall conveniently in our period and also rather neatly allow us to explore alternative narratives, paths not taken, the crystallisation of the idea of the West and how European encounters with non-Europeans solidified this idea. In short, we find the early modern period is the decisive one. The scholar who has created this alternative way of seeing history and how we talk about it and who joins me today is Nisha Maxweeney, who is Professor of Classical Archaeology at the University of Vienna. Her previous books have explored ancient Iona, Troy and Homer's Iliad. And in this sparkling account of and challenge to old myths, Professor Max Sweeney is doing something appropriately epic. I'm delighted to welcome her to talk to me about it. Professor Max Sweeney, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It's an absolute treat to have you on to talk about this new and exciting book of yours. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to be here. We're going to spend most of this podcast thinking about four central chapters in your book that relate to our period. And like all the chapters in your book, they each feature a person, an individual. But I thought perhaps we could start by introducing the central idea what it is you're arguing in this new work. Absolutely. So it's a book, in a sense, about a story. It's a book about the story which we call Western civilization, which gives us a certain version of Western history, which sees Western history as unfurling back in time from Atlantic modernity through the brightness of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, back through the darkness of the Middle Ages to the glories of classical Greece and Rome. And what the book seeks to do is it seeks to unpick that narrative, where that narrative no longer fits with the historical facts as we now know them, also to unpack the ideological significance of that narrative and that position of this narrative in contemporary society. So it hinges very much on these four central chapters, which you've mentioned, which lie absolutely within the square area of this podcast. And that's the moment within which the idea of Western civilization as a narrative is beginning to emerge. And what's really interesting is these are big ideas, and this is a really groundbreaking thesis, but you convey it through the stories of individuals. And I wondered how you chose them, because this isn't your standard pantheon of worthies. Not at all. I 
liked the idea of approaching this through individual biographies because I felt it gave it a little bit more of a human touch. It's very easy when you've got grand historical narratives and big sweeps of giant historical periods to lose track of the individuals. And so I did want to keep people in this history. When it came to choosing the individuals, I wanted to get a spread across time chronologically, but also spatially and culturally as well. So we had different characters and I wasn't interested in having a gallery of greats, but more in people whose lives or whose writings or whose actions really captured something of the zeitgeist of the age in which they lived. So we could see the world through their eyes rather than seeing them as glorious ancestors that we should look back to. And interestingly, in the four that we're going to talk of, three of them are women, which is rather wonderful. So let's start with the first of those, who is a remarkable woman, but someone I suspect whom few people might have heard of, Tulia D'Aragona. Who was she? When did she live? What should we know about her? More people, I feel, really should know about Tulia D'Aragona. She was a high-class courtesan, a poet, a philosopher, a leading intellectual of her day. She was born at the beginning of the 16th century, and she spent her life shuttling back and forth between Rome, Venice and Florence. And she was a well-known figure in the courtly circles of the time, in the intellectual circles of the time as well. Tell me a bit about her literary works. For example, her work that really seems a riposte to Plato's Symposium is quite extraordinary. That is absolutely fantastic. It's very innovative. She writes a series of elegiac poems addressed to leading figures of the day, but the work she's really well known for is this dialogue on the infinity of love and it's riffing off the format of the platonic dialogue in a very tongue-in-cheek kind of way. She's also making references to other contemporary dialogues of the time, including a work by one of her colleagues, Speroni, which featured her as a character within it. So she's turning this on her head, but she also weaves into it a number of Aristotelian ideas as well. And she uses these ideas to contradict Platonic ideas of love. And she comes out at the end of it with her own theory about how love should work, spiritual love versus erotic love, and how different genders engage in erotic activities. What else does she write at this time? There's one more poem that she's not so well known for, which was published posthumously, actually. And this is an epic poem called The Wretch or Il Meschino. And it tells the story, this fantastical epic tale of a young Italian nobleman who is enslaved at birth and lives in Constantinople, but then goes on this wonderful journey across Asia, Africa and Europe to try and find his identity and discover his parents. It's the most extraordinary tale and amazing act of fiction. 28,000 lines of verse as well. I mean, it's something quite extraordinary. What do you think is so important about what it tells us about how Tulia saw the world? What's brilliant about it is that Il Machino really captures Tulia's vision of the world around her, but also history as well, an imagining of 
history. So we have the travels of the central character through Asia, through Africa, through the far-flung corners of Europe as well, having lots of wonderful adventures along the way, fighting monsters, meeting princesses and what have you. But within that are coded several ideas about the past and the histories of these different continents, of the different peoples that he encounters. So what we're getting is, yes, this swashbuckling tale of epic daring do, but we're also getting a kind of ethnography and history of different parts of the world as we go along. Now, one of the things which is quite interesting in the way Tullia d'Aragon has chosen to present the various peoples of the world is that she often makes reference to ancient comparisons, especially classicizing Greek and Roman comparisons in her descriptions of them or in her comparisons that she makes. And what's quite interesting from the perspective of my book is that she sees the classical world, the Greek world, the Roman world, not as something that is just part of the history of Europe. It's absolutely a fundamental part of Asian history too. So she has her lead character travel to India and India is the place where he finds the oracles of Apollo, for example. So there is a kind of a disjoint between what we might expect as a modern audience in terms of the intellectual heritages of Asia, Africa and Europe and what Tullia d'Aragona then presents to us. In other words, if we can think of your characters as each representing the zeitgeist, Tullia d'Aragona expresses this idea that there was a period in which there was no distinct sense of a kind of severed European West, but actually the cultural heritage is one that's absolutely rooted in a global setting. That's exactly it. And she describes wild monsters and terrifying things in Asia, but she describes them in Africa too, and also in Europe. So Europe is just as wild and populated by dangerous monsters as the other continents. The heritage of Europe, which we think of as a European heritage, the classical heritage is not purely European. It's also shared by the other continents. Similarly, Christianity, which again, we think of in terms of Western identity as something often aligned with Europe. We have a representation of the mythical figure of Preston John, who is the idealised Christian king, and he's in Africa. So what Tullia's poem does is it really confounds our modern expectations that we would expect to see religion, a classical heritage, and continental wholeness being wrapped up in one, that they would be in a one-to-one relationship. And what Tullia is portraying in The Wretch is a world which is much more mixed up, where religion and heritage and the geography of the continents is much more blurry and fuzzy than we as a modern audience might expect. Now, Tullia dies in the 1560s. Our next stopping point is 30 years later, where we're going to be thinking about two important women. One of them, very familiar to us, Elizabeth I. Tell us about the other. The other woman is a woman called Safiya Sultan, who is a very high-ranking and powerful woman within the Ottoman Empire. Now, she's not a queen like Elizabeth, but she holds consecutively the role, first of all, of Haseki Sultan. So she's the chief consort of one 
Ottoman Sultan, and then she becomes Valide Sultan. So she is the mother of the next reigning Ottoman Sultan. And so in both of these roles, she has a number of years where she is right at the apex of Ottoman politics, Ottoman international diplomacy, and a wielder of significant political power in and of her own right. What's really exciting is that there is this fantastic cache of documents which record letters written directly between Elizabeth I of England and Safiya Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And we have this fantastic snapshot of quite a personal relationship between these two mature women, leading women who wield a lot of political power, and how they are conducting international diplomacy through the medium of a very personal relationship. And before we think about anything else, the nature of the gender of these two women, the fact that they are in different ways, both very powerful and communicating directly with each other kind of gives us in itself an alternative worldview. It gives us a worldview where we're talking about feminine power. And I was really struck by some of the gendered language in the letters that you quote. Tell me a bit more about that. Absolutely. So these letters, and unfortunately, we've only got three of them, which I think is just the tip of the iceberg, talk about face creams they use. They talk about the metaphor of power being like a skirt that trails behind you, that you pull with you as you go along. So it's a very feminine way of thinking about power, but also a sense of an awareness of their bodies, I think. And this is something which is perhaps inevitable for women in authority or women in all walks of life. Often there is an emphasis on the physicality. I love this idea of skirts of glory and power, and I'm going to quote it from now on. But I just want to pick up on this idea about the face creams, because this isn't to suggest that the conversations are having a trivial in any way. You actually make a very good point in the book that this is one way of both suggesting they've got common ground, but also a a possibility of conveying something through material that men are not going to be interested in reading. Absolutely. So these letters give us a tantalising glimpse of an unwritten set of communications between these two women as well. And we have mention of private agents, so the private servants of one of the other, moving back individually, having private audiences with the other woman, ostensibly to exchange things like face creams and jewels. But actually, these are important parts of the diplomatic process. They fly under the radar, perhaps, of official diplomatic correspondence. These would be communications passed from the mouth to the ear from one woman to another. And we just simply don't know what was said in those meetings. We know these meetings happen. We just don't know what information was exchanged during them. I remember speaking to another guest recently, it was Dr Neil Younger talking about Christopher Hatton, that so many of Elizabeth I's communications were oral and are therefore necessarily lost to history. And we have that again here. We're lucky that we have those three letters to tell us that this happened. But I suppose this also gives us an insight into another shift of the kaleidoscope through which we might see world history. And in this case, we're thinking about what-if situations. How does this give us an insight into a path not taken? 
The relationship between Elizabethan England and the Ottoman Empire is something which has been studied increasingly in the last couple of decades. And what we see in the relationship between Safiye and Elizabeth is this increasing sense of intimacy and closeness and a real desire on the part of these two women to build a bridge, not just between them individually, but also between their realms as well. And the question, I think, for us as historians is just to wonder, what if that alliance had held? What if that alliance had outlived the reigns of these particular two women? What if we had an axis of political and military grouping which had essentially run from the Protestant north of Europe around Britain and across to the Ottoman Empire, which had essentially encircled the Catholic powers of Central Europe? This would have been a very different geopolitical world to the geopolitical world that we now see, where we think of Europe as one block linked perhaps to Christianity and ranged in opposition to North Africa and the Middle East and sometimes Islam. So this alternative geopolitical world never came to pass. Elizabeth died in 1603. Safia fell from power when her grandson took over from her son and he decided to go down a very different diplomatic route. So we have two younger men, James I in England and Ahmed I in the Ottoman Empire, and they decide to abandon this idea of an Anglo-Ottoman alliance and pursue very different diplomatic directions. And we can just muse on what would have happened if this hadn't fallen apart just at the moment when it could have been solidified. And it's not a preposterous idea by any means, because this is an age in England particularly, which is very much doubling down on its Protestantism and creating a sense of otherness between Protestants and Catholics. And so it's totally plausible that it could have been seen that another monotheistic religion like Islam would be preferable to papism, as they considered it, which they thought to be full of superstition and you know praying to lots of saints and all sorts of terrible things that they didn't like. Absolutely. And it works from the other way as well. And we have these wonderful documents written by Fie's consort Murad, who talks about Protestantism as being very close to Islam and contrasts it with Catholicism. And he says that Protestants are like us. They don't have idols. They don't worship images. So there is, from both sides, this sense that there could be some confessional as well as political commonalities which would hold them together. So interesting, that idea of cultural confluence as opposed to the rest of Europe, which is mired in Roman Catholicism. Also, I was fascinated in this chapter to learn that at this point, the English are really stressing, unlike the rest of Europe, the idea that they are descended from the Trojans. Can you talk through that genealogy a little? This is something I was really surprised to discover myself and absolutely fascinated by. We have these stories running through the chronicles of various authors of the medieval period, which trace the genealogies of heroes leaving after the sack of Troy, both Greek heroes and Trojan heroes. And what's really interesting is for 
leading houses, noble houses of Central and Western Europe, there is a claim that they are descended from Trojans, Trojans fleeing the sack of Troy, not Greeks, which is interesting. Again, from a modern perspective, we tend to think of Europe as a cultural heir to ancient Greece. But instead of being the cultural heir of Greece, we now have a claim to being the biological heir of Troy. It's something which seems to fade out in much of Central Europe over the course of the 15th, 16th centuries, but it remains really strong in England especially. And in the Elizabethan age, we have this incredible flowering of literature which looks back to Troy. We have Elizabeth herself being described as a descendant of Paris, the Prince of Troy. She is described in these terms in Spencer's Fairy Queen, for example. And we have her portrayed and painted in Trojan context as well. So it's something which seems to be very much de rigueur in Elizabethan England. And it's something which is also instrumentalised in this relationship with the Ottoman Empire too. So the Ottomans also have a claim to descent from Troy. Not only do they occupy the territory of Troy in modern day Turkey, but there are also references to them being the rightful Caesars, they use this classical language, but there is also references to them being the avengers of Troy against the Greeks. So it is a symbolic language which both sides are using, and it's one more element in the diplomatic arsenal, as it were, to try and pull the two sides together. But this possible route of integration is not taken. And so as we roll over into the 17th century, things start to change in terms of this cultural narrative. And this crystallisation, you suggest, can be examined by looking at the remarkable career of Francis Bacon. Could you explain his career for me and give us a sense of who he was? So I found Bacon particularly interesting because his career spans this crucial moment of change. He starts his career in the time of Elizabeth I and Safia Sultan, but he ends it, of course, in the world of James I and Ahmed I. And so at the beginning of his career, there is this tantalising possibility of an alternative geopolitical alignment between the northern and southern fringes of Europe. But by the end of his career, this seems to be no longer thinkable. It's completely out of the question. And we have the formulation of a worldview where we have religion and cultural heritage and geography as all wrapped up neatly in one. And it's fantastic to see that within the life of one individual, Bacon. He seems to have been a man of many talents. So he starts off as a lawyer in London, becomes an MP relatively early in life, only 20 years old, starts off as MP for Botany in Cornwall. And he spends a bit of time then trying to gain preferment at court and climb the greasy pole politically. And one of the things he tries to do in order to achieve his goals is cosy up to the Earl of Essex, who is by this time one of the Queen's favourites. But this doesn't quite seem to work out for Bacon. He doesn't seem to ever get his big break. He then gets his big break only in 1601, when he's appointed a state prosecutor for kind of a big glamorous celebrity case, which is all to do with treason and scandal. And the only problem with this 
is that he has to, of course, prosecute his former patron, the Earl of Essex. But he manages to do that. He pulls it off. And this really then sets him up for the career that he's hoping for in politics. And then the career really takes off under James I. From 1603 onwards, he becomes Solicitor General, Clerk of the Star Chamber, Attorney General, Privy Councillor, Lord Keeper of the Seal, Lord Chancellor. He does it all. He's got the steady kind of rise in power until about 1621, where he is faced with charges of corruption. And then along with these, he's also charged with sodomy, being a paderast as well. His reputation is ruined. And it's at this point that I suppose the second phase of his career kicks in and he withdraws from public life, leaves London and devotes himself to writing and to science. And this is the point for me, I'm afraid he becomes even more interesting because he has this fantastic, voluminous output of history, of science, of all kinds of philosophy. And this is when I start to really start reading some of his work. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm breathless. I'm panting. So I'm hiking up the Inca Trail in the footsteps of the intrepid explorer Hiram Bingham. Why? Oh, because Dan Snow's history here is going to Machu Picchu. Join me in Peru for an epic mini-series unraveling the mysteries of the Inca, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. We trace their meteoric rise to power, their domination of mountain, desert, and jungle their elaborate ritual and practices, including human sacrifices, and their demise at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors. Out now on Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
find it so interesting that it is in these last few years of his life when he has suffered this extraordinary downfall, completely humiliating exile from public life, this disaster that he actually finds that, I think Hilary Mantel had a wonderful line about this once, that there is a path out of the ditch, you know, and actually if you look for it, and the path for him is this prolific output in the last few years of his life. He's known as being the pioneer of the scientific method, amongst other things, isn't he? Yep. He's called the father of the scientific method, the father of empiricism. So this idea that everything should be testable. You shouldn't just take things on trust or from religion. You should be able to test things in the real world as well, in rigorous environment. And I honestly think that if he hadn't been exiled, if he hadn't suffered this terrible fall, that maybe he would have never got round to doing this scientific work, which we know him so well for today and which he is so important for, which is so influential. What really intrigued me, though, that he wrote a work a bit like Moore's Utopia, this kind of sci-fi novel, if you will, called The New Atlantis. What's this work about? It's absolutely fascinating work, very intricately put together, but completely unlike everything else that he is producing around this time. As you say, it's this fictional account of a voyage by a European ship which gets blown off course and they end up on this very mysterious island. It's an island called Ben Salem, which has been cut off from the world for generations and generations and they have unwittingly happened upon a pristine Christian community which has existed outside from contact with the rest of the world for centuries and centuries. And then the rest of this story is about how the crew of this European ship encounter the people of Ben Salem and come to understand who they are and where they come from. It's also a vision of an ideal society. It's not of this world. It is absolutely utopian. And what Bacon uses the New Atlantis and the idea of Ben Salam to do is to set out, almost like Plato in the Republic as well, this ideal society. How should this society work? What are the principles upon which this society should be based? What is the ideal history of this society? And Bacon has at the heart of Ben Salam this important institution of learning, the House of Solomon, which includes a long gallery of statues. What do the statues have to tell us? The statues are absolutely a gallery of greats. They are all the great scientists, the great inventors in the history of the world, but mostly in the history of Ben Salam. And what's really interesting is that when the crew ask who these amazing men are, they are told that they're mostly not men that you would recognise. They're not men of the West. There are only two recognisable men of the West amongst these greats, and that is Christopher Columbus, who is there because of his discovery of the New World, and Roger Bacon, the 13th century monk credited with discovery of gunpowder. And of course, I think we must imagine that Francis Bacon is giving us a little bit of a nudge wink to have somebody with the same name as him in this gallery of greats as well. What's interesting about this is that the Bensalem Gallery of Greats is represented as something really distinct from 
a Western intellectual genealogy. And when that's sketched out, or when it's hinted at or alluded to, there is reference to Plato, of course, given that he wrote the original story of Atlantis. And then there's reference to, as I mentioned, Roger Bacon, and then to Columbus, and now this European crew. But they are very much described in being a different cultural genealogy to that of Bentalam. Bentalam have their genealogical, intellectual ancestors and the crew of this European ship, they come from a different intellectual genealogy. And that's made quite clear in the course of the New Atlantis. What do you think then is Bacon seeking to tell us about what we think of as the idea of Western civilization, that we have this cultural conglomerate of the ancient Greek and Roman world, which has fed through to Europe today? So for Bacon, what this is coding is the line between, a genealogical line that links the classical world of the Mediterranean, Greece and Rome, with Western Europe, especially Atlantic Western Europe in his own day, which sets it in quite stark opposition to the other parts of the ancient world, which are referenced in relation to Ben Salam, so Persia and Mesopotamia and Egypt, which in the course of the New Atlantis, we hear that Ben Salam had lots of traffic with these Eastern ancient powers, but they are described as being quite different and distinct from the Greeks and the Romans, the northern Mediterranean, and then Atlantic Europe. And for Bacon, that line of the classical world leading up to the modern Atlantic world of his own day, that is one which is absolutely set in stone by the end of his life. And he writes that the only real periods in the world of learning are those of the ancient Greeks and Romans, and now us in Western Europe. This is the equation that is drawn, the ancients of Greece and Rome, and the moderns of Western Atlantic Europe. So do you think we can say that Bacon is creating this kind of narrative of Western civilization, or do you think he's capturing how the narrative is starting to emerge? Bacon doesn't invent this genealogy, but he really captures it and crystallises it in a way which is very easy for us to see. There is a sense of this bubbling under, even in the time of Tullia d'Aragona, in some of the writings of her contemporaries in the 16th century, a couple of generations before Bacon, but it's not yet firmed up, it's not yet crystallised, it's not yet clear, and it becomes more and more visible in the writings of different people over time. But I think in the New Atlantis of Bacon, it's quite nice because it's a lovely formulation of how this genealogy works, a lovely fictionalised encapsulation of this idea of Western civilization as a cultural genealogy. Our last character takes us into encounters with non-Europeans that were real as opposed to fantastical and into a period in which those ideas are really being solidified by those encounters. And fascinatingly, the woman we're going to talk about has just had a new docu-series launched about her on Netflix called African Queens. So this is Najinga of Ndongo and Matamba, modern-day Angola. And the story we're going to tell involves quite a lot of death and violence and ruthlessness. What do we know about Najinga? We know that she's born in a time of 
expanding Portuguese imperialism in West Africa. She is born the daughter of the Ndongo of Ngola at the time, so the leader of Ngola, and she is his favourite child. She excels in the martial arts. She excels when she's invited to the Council of Elders. We know she's groomed for power even as a child. But we also know that as a child, she lives through a very turbulent period where her father's court is forced to move around. It has to flee because the Portuguese are continually pushing inland into what is modern day Angola. We also know that she doesn't actually succeed her father as might have been expected given her privileged upbringing. Her brother, in fact, succeeds her father. This is when she's in her early 30s. And at this point, her brother moves to completely neutralise all potential threats to his reign. So this involves the murder of several male relatives and we hear, at least in our sources, the enforced sterilisation of his sisters. So he kills Njinga's young son and she is supposedly forcibly sterilised. Now, we don't know the truth of this, but it does seem to be true that she never had another child after this. Having done his best to get rid of his sisters out of the political realm, what her brother finds is that he actually can't then do without them. And his resistance against Portuguese expansionism isn't going very well. So when the chips are down and he has to negotiate with the Portuguese, he sends his best and most skilled politician. And this turns out to be his sister, Ninjinka. And this is the moment when we really see her stepping out as a political player in her own right. She goes to Luanda, she meets the Portuguese governor general, and she manages to secure an agreement with the Portuguese that will limit their expansion. Now, to do that, one of the bargaining chips that she has in her arsenal is being baptised herself. So she undergoes this very theatrical, spectacular baptism, which the various eyewitness accounts describe in wonderful, rich, colourful detail. And this then gives her a certain position within European eyes, as well as within Angola itself. And I love the detail you give in terms of the meeting between her and the Portuguese ambassador, because it really gives a sense of her character. How does she make it clear that she's absolutely an equal? So we have these wonderful eyewitness accounts of Ninjinga arriving in the audience chamber and in preparation for her arrival there's a whole series of beautiful coloured velvet cloths and silks that have been spread out on the floor for her to sit on and the assumption is that she will sit on the floor and the Portuguese governor will be sitting on his throne on his chair at the other end of the room. Now Ninjinga sweeps into the room with her retinue and she sees these wonderful, I imagine, cloths on the floor. But she knows that if she is going to negotiate seriously, sitting on the floor is not going to be the best position to do this. So she just signals to one of her attendants, who immediately just drops down on all fours in the middle of the room. And then Ninjinga sits on her back, eye to eye level with the Portuguese governor, looks at him squarely in the eye and then begins her negotiations from that point. And I think it's such a powerful statement that she is not going to be lower physically 
or ideologically than the man that she's negotiating with. You've mentioned this important voluntary baptism as a Christian, which has become central to the story and the idea we're exploring. But also, crucially, she refuses to pay tribute in enslaved peoples. And this sets the tone, I suppose, for her struggles with the Portuguese as time goes on and as she succeeds her brother. What happens during that period of struggle? So as you say, once Ninjinga succeeds her brother, he dies of an illness, a mysterious illness. We don't quite know what brings it about. She has two things to deal with. So she's got internal disrest, but she has the bigger problem, the Portuguese, who don't want to honour the agreement that they signed with her brother that she negotiated. They don't want to acknowledge her as a ruler in her own right, mostly because she's a woman. They refuse to acknowledge her right to rule, and they would like to put up puppet kings in her place. So Ninjinga has two avenues that she can really pursue to try and get out of this problem, and one of these is military. So this is perhaps what she's particularly known for. She was a very gifted warrior in her own right, certainly a great battle strategist and military leader. And one of the strategies that she pursues is to bring into her army a set of warriors who had operated outside formal structures and the state until that point, known as the Imbangalas. They had a very fearsome reputation, a very bloodthirsty reputation, and she manages to bring them into her army by taking part in certain Imbangala rituals, by, in a sense, becoming one of them and persuading them that she is a strong and worthy leader to follow. So she has that additional military strength, which is the first key pillar of her strategy in the fight against the Portuguese. The second key pillar in her struggle is diplomatic. And at the same time, what Ninjinga does is she embarks on this series of international diplomacy with surrounding kingdoms and also with European states as well. And she courts and successfully receives the support of the nearby kingdom of Congo in the north, which is extremely wealthy, very powerful. She also received the support of the Dutch, who formally recognised her as a queen, as a ruler in her own right, against the Portuguese. And crucially, she receives the support of the Pope in the Vatican, who writes to her as a Christian queen and as a legitimate ruler. He calls her my daughter in Christ and he upholds her claim against the Portuguese on the basis of her being a legitimate Christian monarch. And this is absolute gold. This is key in the struggle against the Portuguese for her. What's so interesting is how depictions of Najinga during and following her lifetime have been so instrumental in creating the myth of Western civilization, if we can call it that. Could you explain why? For many people who wrote about her or portrayed her in the century or two after her life, Ninjinga becomes a kind of hate figure, a representation of everything that is other or anti-Western. She is female. She is African. She is barbarous. She fights on the battlefield like a man. She engages in these 
Imbangala rituals, which are viewed as extremely terrifying and suspect and bloody. So for writers like the Marquis de Sade, she appears as this ultimate opposition figure for all the principles that they think the West should stand for. But against this, we also have two biographies written about her by Capuchin monks who lived at her court, especially in the last years of her life. And they portray her in a very different way as a legitimate Christian ruler, but they also describe her in very innovative terms. And one of these two biographies in particular, I was very taken by the biography written by a father Cavazzi, which uses a very particular type of language to describe her over time. Cavazzi starts out by describing her as a bloodthirsty, ruthless woman, comparing her to all the barbarians of antiquity, from the terrible Carthaginians to the bloodthirsty Egyptians. But at the moment of her conversion to Christianity, the language, the vocabulary with which he describes her is utterly transformed. And she's no longer this barbarian queen, but she suddenly becomes a Christian and therefore she suddenly becomes described as comparable to especially the classical worlds of Greece and Rome. And she's literally described as as wise as a Greek, as chaste as a Roman. And I think that's a very interesting conceptual transformation that from being aligned with the barbarians of antiquity to suddenly being aligned with the classical world, it's a transition that she can make purely by fact of her baptism. Would it be fair to say, though, that this is the period, the 17th century, in which that idea about whether religion or race is dominant and how someone is thought of is being negotiated, and that whilst there are these moments where her Christianity can trump her Africanness, that actually perhaps because of the enslavement in which the Portuguese are involved and then everyone else, ideas of Western identity are becoming racialized in this period in a way that lasts for centuries. That's exactly what is happening. We still, in the lifetime of Ninjinga, in the middle of the 17th century, have this flexibility just about we've still got this flexibility to play with the borders and transgress the borders but over the course of the 17th century that becomes harder and harder to do so we have just a couple of decades after her death in 1685 we have the publication of the Code Noir in France which restricts activities by race throughout all the French territories. The same year, we have the publication of François Bernier's Nouvelle Division de la Terre, which explicitly sets out the theory of races as distinct categories of human. And it's really this kind of middle to late 17th century where racialized thinking is becoming crystallized and the borders are becoming conceptually hardened. And Njinga's life is just about spanning that period where shutters are about to come down. And it's one of the last moments where I think it's just about imaginable to play with the boundaries in this way. Together, we've considered four of your 14 individuals. And those who want to know more must rush out and buy a copy of The West. It is a really 
witty and wonderful book. And I suppose I was so struck by it in all sorts of ways, but particularly because, as we've seen over the course of this chat, these two centuries are really a moment of turning for ideas of civilization. Could you give us a little taste of where the story goes after this period? So this period between 16th and 17th centuries, this is the period where the ideas of the West and Western civilization are really coming together. And what's exciting is that you see the different strands being woven together in these two centuries. But as we've seen in this chat, it's still flexible and alternative narratives and counter-narratives are still possible in this time. The remaining chapters of the book, which deal with the 18th century up until the present day, they're very different because from the 18th century onwards, such counter-narratives are no longer possible. We have this very stark conceptual conglomerate, a kind of a geographic hub, a cultural, a civilizational entity and a religious entity as well, wrapped up in one, and the borders and the boundaries of this are very fixed. And that is the West as we now know it or think of it in the modern world. So in a sense, these two centuries are the centuries in which the West as a concept is emerging. And after this point, it changes, it develops, it evolves, but the core elements of it are always there. Well, thank you so much for talking us through this pivotal moment. As I say, your book is really wide-ranging. It starts with Herodotus, it ends with Carrie Lamb, and we've just got a taste of the middle, but what an important middle it is. Thank you for sharing these brilliant new ideas, which you have accessed so cleverly through thinking about these individuals with us today, Professor McSweeney. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.